0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. A very pleasant day to you. I'm Joel Hilliker. The world is tolerating, even embracing, fascism and totalitarianism. Our program today has some stunning examples. We'll start in China. There at the Communist Party's conference that concluded on Sunday, Xi Jinping officially secured his unprecedented third term. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques about how all indications are that Xi will now be emperor for life and really one of the most ambitious emperors China has ever had. Then we'll go over to Italy. It's easy to downplay the connection to totalitarianism there, but we need to understand how significant it is that this nation is looking back on the fascist history of Benito Mussolini with affection. The nation's new prime minister, Giorgia Maloney, heads the nation's most right-wing government since World War II, and her party has direct ties to Mussolini. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Josue Michels about how this is all taking place exactly 100 years this week after Mussolini overthrew the Italian government and began his dictatorship. In our third segment, we'll go to the former Soviet state of Belarus, which is dominated by ex-communist Alexander Lukashenko. This nation is rife with relics of the oppressive Soviet era, And we'll get a look at what's happening there thanks to a morsel of positive news. A human rights group there, Vyazna, just received the Nobel Peace Prize. Our own Mihailo Zekic interviewed a member of the governing board of this group, which provides some insight into what is happening into this country. And we'll finish off the program today by looking into the origins of a bizarre holiday that will be broadly celebrated in just a few days, Halloween. Let's start now by looking at the dictatorial rule of Xi Jinping in this report from Jeremiah Jacques.
1: The writing has been on the wall for at least half a decade now. But even still, to see Xi Jinping the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party secure an unprecedented third term this past Sunday was impacting. This man just 10 years ago was an obscure figure in Chinese politics. The public knew little about him except that his wife was a celebrity singer and that his father had been a comrade to Chairman Mao Zedong. And so back in 2012, as Xi Jinping first assumed the office, of General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, most experts believed he would lead in the tradition of most of his recent predecessors. That would mean staying the course, maintaining, and just unobtrusively and unambitiously preserving the status quo. But from very early on, Xi Jinping began confounding those early forecasts. Leaders before him had worked within a system of collective leadership and they had seen themselves as the first among equals in the Chinese Communist Party. That was largely because of the disastrous history of Mao Zedong, who ruled China with an iron fist from 1949 until his death in 1976. Mao would not heed counsel from anyone, and under his despotic reign, somewhere between 65 million and 75 million Chinese were killed starved, tortured, bullied to suicide, or executed as traitors. So in recognition of the profound tragedy of Mao's rule, Communist Party leaders after him put a premium on collective leadership. And they built some divisions between the CCP and the state. And all of that helped to prevent blind spots and unbridled hubris and it created circumstances of market-friendly reforms that fueled China's rapid economic rise. That was the basic situation from Mao's death in the mid-70s to 2012, when Xi Jinping became head of the CCP. But instead of maintaining the first-among-equals style of leadership used by his recent predecessors, Xi gradually began adopting a strongman approach. He bypassed state council authorities by forming various policy-making party groups, many of which he chairs himself. He also took personal control of writing policy on everything from China's economy and international relations to its environmental strategies and internet regulations. He implemented painful military reforms that placed him at the top as unchallenged commander-in-chief of the enormous People's Liberation Army. And she has used his military power to assert China's authority on the world stage. She also waged an anti-corruption campaign that has investigated at least 4.4 million CCP members. And it resulted in the arrest or imprisonment of a breathtaking 1.4 million of those people. 1.4 million. This would be like the entire population of Hawaii, suddenly being fired from important government positions, and in many cases, incarcerated. So, Xi Jinping quickly defied the early forecasts, and he showed that he was ambitious on a level that no Chinese ruler since Mao had been. Then, in October of 2017, his first five-year term ended, and the Chinese Communist Party, or the CCP, held its 19th Communist Party Congress. And according to well-established CCP precedent, that's when Xi's successor would have been named. But Xi broke from that convention as well. He named no successor. And at that time, the world was jolted by the realization that Xi Jinping was truly not just another Chinese leader, and that he was planning something dramatic for himself, and that much of the CCP was backing him. A short time later, Xi Jinping amended the CCP's constitution to enshrine his key ideas and his authority at its core. This was a major development that bolstered his ability in the following years to make and implement a wide range of policies. So Xi's decision not to name a successor back in 2017 was a bombshell. But even still, much remained unknown. And the CCP's Politburo Standing Committee still included a few men who would question Xi Jinping and check him at times. So there was still some room to hope that Xi would not take the darkest path, the path of a modern Mao. But now we've come to the end of Xi's second five-year term. And over the last several days, the CCP held its 20th Communist Party Congress, and now that the Congress has ended, we see that the most sobering forecasts about Xi Jinping have been confirmed. First of all, 69-year-old Xi Jinping began a precedent-shattering third term. For generations, no Chinese leader has ruled for longer than two five-year terms, but Xi is now several days into his third term. And since there is still no heir apparent on the scene, there's little reason to think that he isn't planning to rule the nation for as long as he lives. So this was a great leap toward dictatorship. and unabashed strongman rule. The norms put into place after Mao's disastrous rule have been dismantled. The notion of collective leadership was dealt a major blow. And Xi now has as much power concentrated in his hands as Mao Zedong before him did. And then the second major development was that just as Xi secured his third term, he also removed the last few men from the CCP's innermost circles who would sometimes question him. And he stacked the deck with extreme loyalists and yes-men. There is now no one in the seven-member Politburo Standing Committee that has views or is willing to express views that differ in any way from those of paramount leader, Xi Jinping. Xi's 20th Party Congress not only installed loyalists in the most powerful support offices, but also two spy experts and military leaders who are focused on China bringing Taiwan under its power. Victor Shai is an associate professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego, and he spoke about the men who now surround Xi in an October 23rd interview with Bloomberg. He said, These are all officials who got to the highest level of power by agreeing with Xi Jinping on everything and by siding with him consistently. They will not start to challenge his decisions, regardless of the merits of those decisions." So there is great danger in a dictator placing himself in an echo chamber where he'll only hear praise and confirmation, but there's also great power in such a configuration. Eurasia Group senior China analyst Neil Thomas called the moves, quote, a clean sweep for Xi allies and a consolidation of power unseen since the Mao era. Meanwhile, just as Xi was stacking the deck with loyalists, he had Hu Jintao forcibly removed from the Communist Party proceedings. Hu Jintao was Xi Jinping's immediate predecessor as CCP general secretary, so he's a towering figure in Chinese politics. And for Xi to have this man forced out in front of all the cameras while she looked on coldly, it is viewed as a major demonstration of power. Gatestone Institute senior fellow Gordon Chang spoke about this on Sunday, saying, this was in a deliberate attempt to humiliate and to show that Xi is in control, complete control. So Xi Jinping has shattered precedent. He has consolidated his power to an astounding degree. And for the near term, we should expect for this to mean that the divide between the CCP and the nation of China will be further blurred in the years to come. The party will be profoundly entwined with all aspects of authority, even more so than it has been. Civic government, military, culture, education, economy. The CCP is already everywhere, and we should expect it to deepen its power over all spheres of Chinese life. This means we should expect Xi's zero-COVID policy, which is still locking down and afflicting tens of millions of Chinese each month, to continue indefinitely. And we should expect China's wolf-warrior diplomacy and its belligerence against the West to intensify. We should also expect the CCP's focus on Taiwan to intensify. Xi Jinping actually said during the 20th Party Congress that he remains committed to conquering Taiwan, and he even emphasized that he's willing to use force to do so. His quote was We will continue to strive for peaceful reunification, but we will never promise to renounce the use of force, and we reserve the option of taking all measures necessary. End quote. So now that the inner circles of the Chinese Communist Party are utterly loyal to Xi, and now that his power is nearly absolute, we should expect the push to absorb Taiwan to happen soon. And since most Taiwanese are dead set against it, we should expect that push to probably be violent. But in either case, China is now in a new Maoist era. Under the new dynamic, the efforts to violently subdue China's Uyghur Muslims and other minorities will also intensify. The drive to control the South China Sea will strengthen as well. And so will China's push against the general global order that it feels is holding it back. Xi Jinping says this will be China's century, and he's now well-positioned to try to make that a reality. Gordon Cheng said the reason why it's so alarming to see Xi seizing complete control over the levers of power is because, quote, Xi Jinping wants to do things that are dangerous, are murderous, malicious. The world has got to be extremely concerned about the direction China's going in. This is one of the world's most dangerous figures, and people have got to be concerned. They need to get as far away as possible, and we have to worry about the dangerous storm End quote. The dangerous storm that is coming. These are sobering words, and they actually align with the forecast that the Bible tells us to expect in the months and years ahead. Some 2,000 years ago, during his ministry on earth, Jesus Christ spoke of a global age that would begin shortly before his return. Luke 21 verse 24 records him calling this age the times of the Gentiles. And the way the scriptures describe this future era, it's clear that it will be a stormy and a violent time. In the February 2020 issue of The Trumpet, editor-in-chief Terrell Flurry wrote, These times of the Gentiles are yet to be fully realized. However, we are in the outer edges of this catastrophic storm. Mr. Fleury goes on from there to explain that the term Gentile basically means the nations, or all peoples other than the Israelite people who descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Modern Israelites include the Jewish nation that we call Israel, but also the United States and Britain and others. Mr. Flurry writes, Once you understand who Israel is, then you can see how the Gentiles, the non-Israelite peoples, have started to take charge of the world already." For decades, American and British leadership was an imperfect, but ultimately a stabilizing force for mankind. And that's because of these nations' biblically-influenced beliefs in the God-given rights of individuals, the rule of law, and the injustice of government tyranny. Those principles were sound, and they helped billions of people to live more stable lives. But now the U.S. and Britain are declining, and Gentile nations such as China and Russia are beginning to fill the void. Mr. Fleury continues, When this prophecy is completely fulfilled, there will be two major powers, one revolving around Russia and China, and the other around Germany. The way Xi Jinping has ruthlessly ruled China up to this point, and his power grab during the 20th Party Congress and his removal of all possible challengers within his party, all of this gives us a preview of how horrendous the times of the Gentiles will be. And as Mr. Fleury wrote, we are now seeing only the first gales of this catastrophic storm. In his forecast about the tempestuous days ahead, Christ said in verse 26 that men's hearts will be failing them from fear. But then in the very next verse, he promises that the storm clouds will break and give way to a stunning radiance. In verse 27, he said, "'And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory.'" These stormy times of the Gentiles, which we're already entering into, will be decisively ended by divine intervention. And then mankind will see the end by force of the age of tyrants, dictators, and totalitarians. The creator of human beings will return to rule with a rod of iron and put an end to all of humanity's ignorant, ineffective, violent, insidious governments, and to enforce His law of love and His government of love and of peace and tranquility. In God's government, there is hope for the people of China, of the present, the future, and even the past. And there is hope for you and me.
0: This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. The connections between Italy's new government and the fascist government of Benito Mussolini are important to watch, as we will now hear in this report
2: from Josue Michels. 100 years ago, on October 24, 1922, Benito Mussolini called on his supporters to overthrow the Italian government. The infamous March on Rome occurred four days later, on October 28th which opened the door for his dictatorship. 100 years later, Italy has inaugurated a new government with ties to the old regime. Many in the new government believed Mussolini's heritage should inspire Italy's future. If that's their vision for Italy and Europe, it's imperative for us to understand this history. The new Italian government under Prime Minister Giorgio Malone took office on October 21st and is called the most far-right-leaning government since the end of World War II. Maloney's party has direct connections with the old dictator, as Trumpet editor-in-chief Jeff Louis explains in Fascism Reawakens in Italy. But those in the Italian government who honor Mussolini's legacy claim to do so not due to his support for Adolf Hitler's anti-Semitic rage or his contribution to the war but for what he did for Italy. Few realize the connection between Mussolini's vision and the resulting destruction. When Mussolini and his supporters called for the march on Rome 100 years ago, they were ready to shed blood in order to gain power over Italy. But many have looked at the events surrounding October 28th as a bloodless revolution. The fact that it remained bloodless was however not due to Mussolini's credit. King Victor Emmanuel III prevented Italy's army from opposing Mussolini's troops and instead asked Mussolini to form a government the next day. The planned violent overthrow of the government turned into a legal transfer of power. The fact that the majority of Italians were willing to accept a bunch of fascist rioters as their new leaders is educational for us today. Till this point Mussolini had only been known for his criminal record and his eloquent speeches. The reason these speeches inspired the people is because they were upset about the status quo. They were happy to submit to dictatorial rule, if it guaranteed them economic prosperity. The Encyclopedia Britannica noted, Mussolini seemed to them the one man capable of bringing order out of chaos. Soon a kind of order had been restored and the fascists inaugurated ambitious programs of public works. The cost of this order were however enormous. Italy's fragile democratic system was abolished, in favor of a one-party state. Opposition parties, trade unions and the free press were outlawed. Free speech was crushed." But to the average citizen, this often didn't matter. They instead looked at the results of his achievements. Mussolini gave Italy an inspiring vision of restoring Italy's lost glory. He didn't just give workers work, he gave them a reason to work. Of course, he didn't actually solve Italy's problems, but he made the still gloomy reality look better. When then did Mussolini become the warlord that he is known for today? The Encyclopedia Britannica notes that his dreams of empire led him to seek foreign conquests, end of quote. The same vision of seeking to restore the glory of Italy caused him to be jealous over Hitler's military conquests. Hitler and Mussolini's goals soon merged to the detriment of the world. This is clear to us today, but at the time the Western world sat idly by, seeing the dictators rise. But there was one man that was alarmed by Mussolini's proclamation to restore the Roman Empire. Early on, the late Herbert W. Armstrong warned that his aspiration will be destructive. In the very first Plain Truth issue, titled Is a World Dictator About to Appear, published in February 1934, he wrote, quote, It is commonly known that Mussolini's whole aim is to restore the ancient Roman Empire in all its former splendor, power, and glory, and Rome ruled the world." In 1938, Italy sought a close alliance with Nazi Germany, which compelled Mr. Armstrong to reiterate his warning, We shall witness the mighty Roman Empire reborn, the fascist Nazi dictatorships of Europe, is the rebirth of Roman Empire that the events of these past few days concern." Keep in mind, even in 1938, many in the Western world still praised Hitler and Mussolini and sought to appease Hitler's demands. After the war, it has become evident that Mr. Armstrong was right. Here's another quote of his.
3: So once again, the plain truth, even in his first issue, was way ahead of its time was predicting what was going to happen. People scoffed, they said, that's a crackpot, he doesn't know what he's talking about, but World War II did happen. It did come.
2: Mr. Armstrong, unlike the newscasters of his day, understood that an attempt to resurrect the old Roman Empire would lead the world to war. He knew that the promises to restore Italy to so-called greatness would cause surrounding nations to suffer. But just like in Mr. Armstrong's days, people today scoff and fail to see how the one leads to the other. Italians today are inspired by a quest to restore Italy's glory. They seek a stable economy, stable families and a stable justice system. None of these desires are wrong. But what Italians fail to see is that their own history doesn't provide solutions. The prophet Isaiah wrote, quote, The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goes therein shall not know peace. That was Isaiah 59 verse 8. It's even worse than that. Man's ideas eventually always lead to destructions. Proverbs 14 verse 12 reads, There is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death." Just like Mr. Armstrong did in his day, Gerald Louis warns today of another resurrection of the old empire and an even more destructive war. Here's a quote from his recent article, "'We have been forecasting for over 75 years "'that the same empire will rise once more. "'When it does, it will launch a war even more destructive than World War II. This empire took a major step forward in Italy's recent election, yet nobody is talking about it, end of quote. Once again, people don't connect the dots due to an abysmal lack of understanding in history and Bible prophecy. Some even admire the European movements that promised to restore the continent's glory due to the opposition to left-wing liberal trends. Nobody however understands the desire to revive the Roman Empire will again lead to destruction. As Mr. Armstrong later came to understand, through God's revelation, Hitler's and Mussolini's empire was prophesied in Revelation 17 this prophecy along with numerous others in the Old and New Testament have guided Mr. Armstrong's analysis and are the basis of the Trumpet's forecast today.
0: Thank you very much, Josue. It is interesting you have someone like Giorgio Maloney coming in in Italy, who there's a lot of what she says that that we would agree with. She's taking a lot of positions that um, are a counterbalance to the kind of leftists thinking that has really infected a lot of Europe and created a lot of problems over there. You can see why she would be inspiring. A certain amount of enthusiasm among Italian voters who are are tired of having all of the the leftist propaganda kind of forced on them. Uh, you mentioned how there are people who are concerned about the about her rise and the rise of her party, uh, but it's for very different reasons than the reasons we're concerned about it. Maybe you can just
2: talk about the reaction against her. Yes, that's why. I- the liberal media has been very concerned about her rise, has been warning about even the connections she has to Mussolini and some of the statements she has been making about it. So they are warning about the rise of the far right. And we would agree to a certain extent that that's concerning what's happening. But then if you look at what they are actually warning about, we would take again exception. They're warning that she wants to restore the traditional family. That's one of their biggest concerns. She wants to protect the mothers that stay at home and take care of the children. And the liberal media is outraged. How can she destroy all the rights that we have been working for, the LGBTQ movement, the abortion rights... And all of that is at threat because of her vice. And that's exactly what Mussolini's fault was too. Now, if you look at that specifically, we totally disagree with that. You can't argue that traditional families are the danger of our world. Right. And here, the, far, the right in America says, the liberals, the far left here, has it all wrong. We should celebrate the vice. Of Maloney. And here again we would say, yes, we would say it's good to support traditional families. But now let's look why she wants to support traditional family. Why she wants to stop the flow of migrants into Italy. What is her motivation? And there we see that she actually has some ties to Mussolini that's concerning. She, like Mussolini, has a vision of a great Italy that's based on it. Italy's history of the Roman Empire. She wants to preserve the Roman culture and specifically she calls herself a Christian Catholic. She wants to preserve the religious system of that continent. And now here it gets a bit concerning because if you want to preserve that culture and if you want to make Italy great and if you want to restore that Roman Empire, it will lead to another war, just like it led Mussolini to another war, because you can't have that in today's world where we have those opposing cultures clashing with each other if you have a strong Europe, it will eventually clash with those surrounding nations and with the South, where there are predominant Muslim cultures. You see that there is a conflict of interest here if you seek to preserve your culture, in that sense, just like it has been done historically, it will lead to the same historic clashes. And the revival of the Roman Empire is a revival of an empire that sought to dominate the world because it wasn't satisfied with preserving its own culture. It thought its culture is better than the cultures of the rest of the world and it sought world dominates for that reason. So you have to see why she supports traditional families. She wants to preserve the culture in Italy, to then expand that same culture like it has been tried to be done so many times before.
0: Yeah, to, to look at what's happening here, apart from biblical prophecy, really only gives you a very tiny sliver of the picture that you need in order to understand it. It is important to look at it in the context of the history of the Roman Empire, the history of the Holy Roman Empire in particular, the prophecies regarding the Holy Roman Empire and why we need to watch for the rise of this church-state combine in this end time. And you also have to look at the scriptures that talk about how good satan is the devil is at presenting himself as an angel of light he's very good at counterfeiting things that really do appear noble and right and you can look at some of the policies that georgia maloney is espousing and they they are right they're they're good uh they're good policies or, or good goals to be shooting for but if you if you uh, examine those absent all of that context you're going to miss the real significance of what is taking place here we've been talking with Josue Michels about Italy's new government and it's connection with Benito Mussolini this is exactly 100 years after Mussolini established his fascist government in that country Josue has written an article about this 100 years after Mussolini's march on Rome, watch for that on thetrumpet.com, thanks so much for your time Josue,
2: thanks for having me again
0: This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. A human rights organization in the former Soviet state of Belarus just received the Nobel Peace Prize. We'll get some insight into what is happening in this country from one of the officials of this group in this report from Mihailo Zekic.
4: The country of Belarus sometimes feels like a perennial source of bad news. Since the 1990s, the former Soviet state has been under the iron-fisted regime of ex-communist functionary Alexander Lukashenko. Relics of the Soviet period, such as collective farming and a secret police that still calls itself the KGB, abound. When Belarus does make the Western news... It's usually to do with a prominent journalist being thrown into prison, or threats to join Russia's war in Ukraine, or some other disruption. But every once in a while, a beam of sunshine pierces through Belarus's gloomy news. Such a beam shone on Friday, October 7th, to Alex Bialyatsky, the founder and chairman of Vyasna, one of Belarus's oldest and largest human rights groups. That day, along with two other recipients, Alez Belyatsky won the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize. The giving of arguably the most prestigious award in peacemaking certainly gives the team at Vyasna hope. And they need hope. Belarus is one of the most difficult countries in Europe to do human rights work in. Vyasna was founded by Bialyatsky and his colleagues in April of 1996 after mass arrests following protests against the Lukashenko regime. Vyasna's work involves giving Belarusian victims of human rights abuses legal aid, as well as publishing their stories to inform the public at large. This puts them on the radar of Lukashenko's security apparatus – Jaletsky has currently been in prison for over a year in his second stint in Belarusian prison, and he is not the only member of Vyasna currently behind bars for human rights work. What is the quality of life like in Belarusian prisons? Natalia Satsunkevich sits on Vyasna's governing board. Here is what she told the trumpet on October 18th.
3: Unless uh, he stays in a so-called pre-trial detention center, because there were no court trial, <laughs> he stays for more than most fourteen months, and it's very old building in the center of Minsk, capital city, and it's very old, and you can imagine that um, condition there are really poor. Um, mostly they are poor because. Uh, because the building is old, yeah? the humidity is too high. There is no sunlight there. Um, but also uh, the conditions are poor because of the system. Uh, There's no humanism there. And for example, uh, a person could take a shower only once uh, a week uh, for 15 minutes. Yeah? You have only one hour of walk uh, a day and it happens, you, can, you should imagine that it's also the same stone cage, but uh, only with some sky. Uh, and cells there are overcrowded. It could be up to 20 people. And you live day by day, month by month, year by year uh, with uh, these people, 20 people. And also the quality of food is poor. And the big problem is uh, that lack of qualified medical uh, assistance there. Eye diseases are very um, spread there because of the lack of sunlight, and also you feel this pressure uh, every day. You can't meet with your family. Uh, lettering, letters, and postcards are very limited by censorship by the administration of this that uh, portrayal detention center, and also you can't meet with your lawyer confidentially. You know exactly that all meetings and all words are recorded.
4: Human rights groups are not the only targets of Lukashenko's regime. Lukashenko still rules in Minsk after all these years, only after rigging Belarus's presidential elections in 2020. Everybody knows Lukashenko is illegitimate. Everybody is tired of him. Lukashenko only has two things he can do to preserve his rule. The first is to create a climate of terror so people lose the courage to challenge him. According to Satsunkevich,
3: People are very scared, uh, because the regime um, keeps this atmosphere of fear and repression in Belarus.
4: The second of Lukashenko's means of remaining in power is by far the most important. This is to rely on his next-door neighbor, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Through military support, fossil fuel subsidies and other means, Putin has kept Lukashenko's government afloat. Lukashenko is heavily indebted to Putin and has surrendered the sovereignty of his country to Russia in all but name. Belarus and Russia are already incredibly integrated with each other politically, and Putin was able to use Belarus as a launchpad for his military against Ukraine in the current war. Some may hope that the ukraine war could help spread democracy in eastern europe but in the short term the war has given excuse for lukashenko to double down on his people
3: when a person takes p- a picture of russian military equipment that goes through belarusian territory to ukraine and passes this photo to independent media that's a criminal case yeah real people Arrested and gets real prison term because of doing that for five, for four or five years. And also, authorities, after the beginning of the war, authorities started to be more brutal during arrests. Some people were um, uh, shooted, not killed, yeah, but shooted uh, in Belarus. And also, authorities use this term of uh, terrorism uh, for people who try to protest in different forms. And uh, they name people as terrorists. And it's also,
4: of course, it's not the truth. This is why awards like the Nobel Peace Prize are so meaningful. Little changes regarding the human rights situation in Belarus. The international community sees this and slows their support. Out of sight, out of mind. Sometimes, the international community will twist Lukashenko's arm, so to speak, and pressure him to release certain political prisoners in exchange for sanction relief. But the systemic change groups like Vyasna look for never comes. The Peace Prize shows that people do notice. The Peace Prize shows that, despite their seemingly fruitless efforts, the work of Vyasna and people like Alex Bialyatsky is leading somewhere. Satsunkevich hopes that the publicity of the award will bring foreign pressure on Lukashenko's regime to reform. But if nothing else, the Nobel Peace Prize shows that, despite the continuous suffering of the people of Belarus, somebody, somewhere out there, hasn't forgotten, and they're doing all they can to help it remains to be seen how the Peace Prize will affect the situation in Belarus or how the Ukraine war will exactly conclude. But the prize actually demonstrates a truth that most may not realize, that there is someone out there that sees the people suffering, sees oppression, sees tyranny, sees injustice for the people of Belarus and elsewhere. When it seems like the world has forgotten their plight, there is someone out there who hasn't, and he is going to do all he can to fix their problems. This may not be immediate, but this strong hand from someplace has a lot more to offer than just a gold medal or good publicity. Thousands of years ago in Egypt, there existed a people called the Israelites. These Israelites, fast outpopulating the land's native inhabitants, became enslaved by the ancient Egyptians. Day in and day out, year after year, the Israelites were forced to construct cities, intensive labor projects that consumed their strength. The lot for these Israelites seemed to just keep getting worse and worse. With the only end in sight being the grave. Somebody had not forgotten, however. God had made a covenant with Israel's ancestors to make them a great nation. He wasn't going to let the Egyptians blot them out of existence. The people of Israel groaned under their bondage and cried out for help, and their cry under bondage came up to God, and God heard their groaning, And God remembered his covenant. You can read that in Exodus 2, verses 23 and 24, in the Revised Standard Version. The same God who heard the groaning of those Israelites hears the groaning of every single Belarusian rotting in a Minsk prison. And he has bound himself with different promises to give them, and the whole world, real freedom and real peace. The trumpet often uses a prophecy in Ezekiel 38 to analyze current events in Eastern Europe. This prophecy, dated to our time today, discusses, as the New King James Version renders verse 2, a Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. These three groups are the ancestral peoples of modern Russia, and this is all recorded in our Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry's booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia. Mr. Flurry identifies this Prince of Rosh with Vladimir Putin. Based on this, Mr. Flurry made some predictions on what direction Putin would take Russia. The use of all three names, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, shows that this is an individual ruler of all the peoples of Russia, from the west to the east. This giant swath of land indicates the prince will probably conquer more nations of the former Soviet Union, he writes. Events like those in Belarus and Ukraine have proven Mr. Fleury right. This may seem to be bad news for countries like Belarus. Other prophecies show that circumstances will get worse before they get better. But notice what God says to the Prince of Rosh in Ezekiel 38, verses 3 to 4. Behold, I am against you, and I will turn you back and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you forth. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, says that when nobody else would be able to stop the Russian juggernaut, he will. The Russian bear is no match for Almighty God. The rest of the prophecy in Ezekiel 38 details a time when this same Russian war machine tries to resurge a second time. And God stops it a second time. God is not going to let small nations like Belarus be terrorized by this system anymore. People can see that Belarus's problems are fundamentally caused by Vladimir Putin and what he is doing. People can see that for peace and freedom to come to places like Belarus... Vladimir Putin has to be stopped. Many also see that Putin isn't going away anytime soon, which means Belarus's problems aren't going away anytime soon. The Bible prophesies that Putin's power is only going to grow more and more, but the same Bible says God will eventually stop him, and real freedom will follow. In this sense, as discouraging as events in Belarus and Ukraine may make one feel, this is all a sign of good things. God, through his word, gives the solution to Belarus's problems. Mr. Fleury writes, Vladimir Putin is a sign, literally a sign, that Jesus Christ is about to return. This is one of the most inspiring prophecies in the Bible. What we are seeing in Russia ultimately leads to the transition from man-ruling man to God-ruling man. And it is almost here. It is just a few short years away. Any benefit the Nobel Peace Prize gives to the people of Belarus will be very temporary. But the Bible promises a hope the Nobel Prize can't give. It's a lasting hope, as sure as tomorrow's sunrise. To learn more, Please request a copy of The Prophesied Prince of Russia at thetrumpet.com.
0: for today's Last Word. Each October 31st is Halloween, a truly bizarre, grotesque holiday. It's disgusting and evil, and it's meant to be. All corpses and blood, zombies and vampires, horror, grotesquerie, and death. This gore fest is America's second most lucrative holiday season. Most people celebrate it simply because everyone else is, and they just go along unthinkingly. But it's important to step back and question whether or not the crowd is actually doing the right thing. You shall not follow a multitude to do evil. That admonition to exercise your mind, to challenge conventional wisdom, to be willing to be an individual and stand alone when necessary comes from the Bible. It's in the law of Moses in Exodus 23 and verse 2. Yes, the herd mentality is just about as common to people as it is to sheep who will stupidly follow the other sheep around them to the slaughter. And such is the case with Halloween. Just look at the themes and the images that dominate public spaces and popular entertainment around this time of year. Doesn't it make you curious about how we came to have these strange customs that promote darkness and evil? Isn't it worth looking into? You don't have to look very deep to find some illuminating and important answers. People like to think it's all harmless fun, but they're making some dangerous assumptions. These practices have roots in evils that go back millennia. Halloween can be traced back long before Christian times to pagan Scottish and Irish folk customs, celebrated first by the Druids in honor of Sam Hain, Lord of the Dead, whose festival fell on October 1st. That comes from Ralph Linton's Halloween Through 20 Centuries. Halloween was the evening celebration in anticipation of the great day of November 1st, All Saints Day, in honor of Satan, Lord of the Dead. Modern Christianity, though, would have us believe that November 1st is the day we honor those saints who've died and gone to heaven. The 1st of November, celebrated among the pagans in honor of Sam Samhain, or Satan, is today celebrated in hundreds of churches to honor all the saints known and unknown. That's the words of the Catholic Encyclopedia. The Catholics, until the 3rd century AD, had been venerating martyred saints, each on a separate day. But there were so many saints that had been martyred that the church decided to honor them all on one day. And which day did they choose? November 1st. And that conveniently corresponded to the day when the Lord of the Dead was worshipped. And it was to be a day to honor all the dead, not only the modern saints, and Why is that? Well, it's because the pagans used November 1st to honor the dead in general. But why appease the pagans? So the church could gain more heathen converts. This veneration of saints, the saints who are supposedly alive in heaven, came to be celebrated on a day in honor of the devil because... It was a practice that was quite in line with church policy of incorporating harmless pagan folk ideas. That's from Linton's book. Thus came All Saints Day, and it's Eve, All Hallows Day, or Halloween, but it, it embodies the worship of Sam Samhain, actually Satan. Now, these blatant heathen practices worked themselves into professing Christianity and are being celebrated today with most people giving no thought at all to their origin and very few doing anything about it once they learn about it. Virtually all the common holidays have these kinds of pagan origins. If you've never looked into it, you really should. But with Halloween, anybody can see it's Filled with exactly the opposite of what the Bible tells us we should be doing and thinking about. God condemns occultism and witchcraft. Zombies come from demonic African voodoo traditions, along with the idea that sorcerers can revive dead people. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the resurrection. The truth about resurrection is one of the most inspiring in the Bible. Vampires have existed in folklore for centuries, but the basic idea of these immortal beings that have to drink human blood to survive is really a perversion of the biblical truth about humans needing the blood of Jesus Christ to survive. No matter how much of a joke you make it out to be, Halloween is simply Satan worship, and it's connected with idolatry and demonism. God and true Christianity stand for the exact opposite of death and darkness. They stand for light and for life. God doesn't find wickedness the least entertaining, and He would never dismiss evil as harmless. He is a God of life, not of death. He is light. And he tells us not to have fellowship with darkness. He wants us to set our minds on the positive things, to think about whatever is true and honorable and pure and lovely and worthy of praise, because that's the way he thinks. Halloween is associated with so many dark traditions and practices, but there are days on which we are to worship the great God, days that he instituted within ancient Israel that are still to be kept in our modern society. You can request our free booklet, Pagan Holidays or God's Holy Day's which to understand more about the inspiration and the peace that God's annual festivals can bring into your life. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at trumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Jeremiah Jacques, Josue Michels, and Mihailo Zekic. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Marcus Aurelius. The happiness of your life depends upon the quality of your thoughts. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. To Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.